For those of you who have Bibles, I thought I'd make it as easy as possible for you to find the passage because it's the very beginning chapter. One of the things that I wanted to say before I read the passage and before I start the sermon, before I pray, is I want to make the distinction between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is an awareness of facts. I can know if the red light on my dash lights up. Wisdom, on the other hand, is understand the implications of those facts. Wisdom tells me to get to the mechanic. We're going to look today at a truth, which is that we are image bearers, but we're going to take time and look at how Scripture unpacks the implications of that truth and how we're called to live. Because it's a radical, radical shift in how our culture encourages us to live. Let me open in prayer. Father, we come to you as your children. We also come to you as image bearers. We come to you recognizing that we are dependent, and yet in many ways believing that we are sufficient. I pray that you would speak to us today, that we would know your heart and that you would shape ours. I pray that you would work to help us to know how to please you, how to love you because of your love for us, and how to relate to all of those who are dear to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage this morning is Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So in keeping with knowledge and wisdom, I want to begin with observations, which would be more of the focus of the knowledge. One observation that we have to look at and can't escape is that God created humanity. He created us. He made us who we are. He tells us who we are. We discover, but we do not define ourselves. We discover, but do not define other people. And so our goal is to be Christ-like while still being ourselves. I want to take a moment to unpack that. 
How often have you said or have you heard someone else say, well, that's just me? How often do you say that? But the truth of the matter is that isn't just you. That's you in process. We like to resist change. We like to battle against it. We like to try and continue to sustain who we are as we are in the moment. But the truth of the matter is we're called to grow in Christ-likeness. We're called to grow and be reflections of God. In Ephesians 4, verses 13 through 15, and I apologize, but we're going to be going all over Scripture because what I want to try and do is help us to understand the observation in the context of the whole of Scripture. Verses 13 through 15. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All of humanity are image bearers. It's not limited to believers, and it's not gender-focused. Everyone is an image bearer. And the implications of being image bearers, as we shift into the wisdom component, is that all human beings have a particular dignity and a responsibility that we cannot deny them by treating them as less. I want you to think about that for a moment. We are not free to deny the dignity of image bearers. If we do, we answer to the Father. We answer to the Son and we answer to the Spirit. You cannot treat an image bearer as less than who they are. They have dominion. They have a charter from God. They have value. And so I want to look at two things. I want to look at what the implications of being an image bearer require of us. And I want to look at what being an image bearer prohibits us from doing. The first thing we have to recognize as we look at being image bearers is that this is speaking of community. Let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them. The dominion that he gave to Adam and Eve was given to humanity. There is a community. And we understand that in the New Testament, we often hear the body of Christ, believers, spoken of as a community, as a body. But the truth is, everybody is created for community. And all of humanity is part of our body. Not just the body of Christ, but the body of humanity. 
In other words, we're not autonomous individuals. Now, one of the things that I've come to understand more and more recently is the relationship between particular acts of sin and the root sins that inhabit us. I deal a lot with people who have communication and relationship problems. I deal a lot with people who have addictive behaviors. I deal with all sorts of different people, but what I find is that we recognize those particular sins that we want to squash. We recognize particular patterns and behaviors of sin that we want to stop in their tracks. The difficulty is if we don't understand the root structure and the deeper sins that shape us, what we will find is that that one particular pattern of sin that we want to squash, we're feeding someplace else. And so it's really important to understand in this, in this teaching, there is a root pattern of sin that indwells us perniciously. And that's objectification. It's selfishness. It's the belief that we're autonomous and that life is about us. It's just who I am. You've got to get used to it. Gosh darn it, don't you understand that the world revolves around me? No, it doesn't. It's a God-centered world. It revolves around God. But God has so loved us that he's created us in his image. And we cannot, we cannot deny community, and we cannot die, deny the fact that every person with whom we interact is an image bearer. We must treat all others and, and ourselves with dignity and respect. Some people have a difficult time treating others with respect, but there are a lot of people who have a difficult time treating themselves with respect. Image bearers matter. They are beloved of God. So what does it look like to treat image bearers with dignity and respect? Some of this comes from a book that Paul Miller wrote called Love Walked Among Us. It's a really helpful book. It's, in fact, one of my favorites from Paul. I like it better even than A Praying Life, but I like A Praying Life a lot. But one of the things that Paul does is he looks at how Jesus manifests love in different ways. And the first way he focuses on is to see. I just want to reflect a couple of stories where we see how important it is to see an image bearer. One is the story of Jesus at Simon the Pharisee's house. It's in Luke 7. Simon has invited Jesus into his home. He wants to have Jesus come and have dinner with him. So Jesus comes, but as Jesus comes, there is this other person who straggles in. And she's a sinner. And she's a she. Now, if you don't understand the the first century Jewish household structure, men and women didn't didn't inhabit the same spaces if they weren't family. Here's a woman who's not related to anybody in the home coming into where the men are eating their meal. 
Already that's a no-no. But this woman is a sinful woman. She's probably having engaged in some pattern of sexual sin. She might be a prostitute. And she comes to Jesus. And she wets his feet with her tears. Then bending down, she wipes his feet with her hair. Then she kisses his feet. And gosh darn it, this doesn't look like she's plying her trade trying to use Jesus in the midst of this meal. Simon, the host, gets angry. He begins to condemn Jesus in his heart, saying that this man can't even be a prophet. If he were a prophet, he would be keeping my home pure. He'd kick her out. And so Jesus tells Simon a parable about debtors. And and then, to top it all off, Jesus, while still continuing to talk to Simon, turns to the woman and says, Simon, do you see her? Simon's problem in his own mind is he has seen her. She's not supposed to be there. But the point that Jesus is making is that Simon has not seen her with wisdom. Simon has not seen that what she is doing is worship, not prostitution. Simon, to be honest, has not seen her in the way that he needs to as an image bearer. She's an object. She is a competitor for Jesus' use. Simon wants to use Jesus for his stature. This woman wants to use Jesus for some reason because that's why she's there. And Jesus says, no, you have not seen. Another story is out of Luke 10. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is seeing the heart of the Pharisee who is asking him, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him a story. A story about a man who traveling from Jerusalem, from Jericho to Jerusalem was attacked and robbed, left on the side of the road dead, that the priest saw and walked past. And that the Levi saw and walked past. Neither saw with wisdom. They simply saw a fact. The red light on the dash was on. But they didn't know what to do with it. The Samaritan, on the other hand, even though he's a Samaritan and is the scum of the earth, doesn't know how to do anything and should be ignored and avoided and kept away at all costs, the Samaritan saw this man with wisdom and compassion. And he treated him. And he saved his life. And he was the neighbor. So we are to see with wisdom. That's hard. That's hard. How many people do you see with knowledge? And it's really difficult, and we're going to talk later about the fact that that there's just way too much for us to do. We're not capable of resolving all of the problems in the world. But I want you to see with wisdom. I want you to see the reality and the issues involved, and I want you to act. Do you see the person who's checking you out 
in the grocery line with wisdom? Or are they simply an object that exists to get you out of the store as quickly as possible and as accurately as possible? Do you see the person who serves you in the restaurant? Are they an object, a robot, or are they a person? We're called to see the way that Jesus sees. We're called to listen and speak. James 1, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We can listen with knowledge. Oh, yeah, I heard that. How often do we listen FYI? How many emails come across your screen with prayer requests? How many emails come across your screen with needs? How many emails come across your screen that you look at the subject and pass on by? And I'm not saying that you're the solution for all of those email issues. But I am saying, watch your heart. I am saying, be sensitive to the Lord's leading. Because every person who wrote you, unless it's AI, is a person. They matter. How do you reflect that in your response? When you listen to someone, do you listen? I was talking to a father recently about his interactions with his kids, and, and one of the things that's going on is that he and his late adolescent daughter, well, not late adolescent, mid-adolescent daughter, have a real battle over the light in the hallway. She's terrified of the dark. He wants to save money on electricity. She has a light on her room. The door of her room is closed, so gosh darn it, why can't we have the hallway light off? It's simple. The solution is your light is on in your room. The hallway light is off. But we talked, and he began to understand that he needs to listen more to her. Why does the light need to be on in the hallway? What's going on inside? What's the deeper issue that she's wrestling with? Why is she afraid of the dark? There's stories here. There are things where hearts can connect. It's so easy to come up with simple solutions and simple categorical ways of living that say, well, A equals B, therefore A equals B. Gosh darn it. But if A equals B, why is B B instead of A? There's a difference. Why is there a difference? How do we begin to take the time to engage? Because when we're listening to someone who's speaking, we're listening to an image bearer. They have value. And how you respond to them either will communicate to them that they matter or that they don't. And if you communicate to them that they don't matter, you're lying and you're wrong. And where the change needs to take place, at least in part, is in you. How do we listen in the way that Jesus would listen? How do we engage? 
Because we have so many simple solutions that we simply place on a situation and walk on because we're just too busy. We just don't have the time, and we don't have the energy, and we need to shepherd our resources. We also have to speak. I'm going to get to it later in the section on what this prohibits. But when you don't speak to someone, why? Are they not worth the engagement? Do they not have a reason to hear what you have to say? Would they not have some blessing from what you have to offer them? Do they just not deserve your attention? And I can understand there's all sorts of different relationship dynamics that are in play, but there is a foundational truth that the people with whom you interact are image bearers, and they deserve your engagement. They matter. And we're called to care. We're called to love them as Jesus loves them. John 13, 34 through 35, the night that Jesus is betrayed, he's in the upper room with his disciples. And one of the last things he says before he takes them out to Gethsemane, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. As I have loved you. That's pretty difficult. Jesus loves as our Savior. Jesus loves as our Creator. Jesus loves as our God. Jesus loves as the one who's about to go to the cross and demonstrate love in a way that it has never been demonstrated. And that's what he says to his disciples, which, by the way, is to all of us. That love is redemptive and as much as possible comforting. We can never compromise on the redemptive component of that love. It is all about bringing Christ-likeness to ourselves and to the other. Sometimes that means that there isn't comfort. I'm sure Katie doesn't remember it, but when she was two, her husband will understand this, but she had a fever of unknown origin. So her mom and I took her to the doctor's office, and the doctor said, well, we we don't know where this fever comes from. We've got to get her over to the hospital so they can draw blood, and we can make sure this isn't meningitis. So we go to the hospital, and we go up into this, this antiseptic lab with this wooden chair with arms that stick out, and I can see what's coming. She was a strong little bugger. So I have to hold her arm down to the wood. Well, from her perspective, the nurse is sticking his honking needle in her arm. And she looks at me with these eyes like, I thought you were my daddy. I thought you liked me. And it wasn't until the nurse was done, or the phlebotomist to be precise, being as many physicians and nurses and others in this 
assembly as there are. I can't be imprecise in my language. As soon as the technician, we'll make it easy, was done and the needle was out, I could comfort her. I could give her a hug. I could let her cry. But the thing that I realized from that experience is that when I have to be redemptive and we're going to draw the blood, if it hurts, it has to hurt me. We cannot heartlessly love another. It may be painful, but when it's painful, we have to share in that pain. We cannot sit back and say, sucks to be you. That is not the way that Christ loves. That is not something we're free to do. And I cannot, like the phlebotomist, she's just a little kid, she's obnoxious, if she gets a little bit of hamburger in her arm, it's okay, we'll get the blood. No! This is my child. This is an image bearer. Redemptive always, comfort as much as possible. And if we love that way, it'll stand out. What does this prohibit us from doing? Sometimes it's easier to see what we're not doing by recognizing what we are doing. We are not able to treat an image bearer as less than an image bearer. We're not free to treat them like an object. We are prohibited from using others. We can't use them for labor. Now, they may do work, but not for selfish gain on my part. We can't use them selfishly for profit. You work hard, I'll take the money. We can't use them for lust. If you want to get to the heart of some of those particular sins that we're fighting, anyone who reads Matthew 5, 27 through 30, is going to recognize that Jesus is not just talking about thoughts. He talks about, you know that it's true that you're not to commit adultery. And then he says, but I say to you, anyone who looks lustfully on a woman has committed adultery with her already in his heart. You can't look lustfully on an image bearer. There's a whole issue here with the role of selfish sex versus biblical intimacy, and I'm not going to get into that today. It's a great discussion to have And frankly, it's one of the besetting problems of our culture outside the church and inside the church. But if you take away objectification, that problem goes away completely. If you take away selfishness, that problem goes away completely. We cannot use others. We cannot ignore others. 
How often have you or someone that you've been with said, well, I wasn't trying to hurt you, as if that should make it okay? Well, yeah, I'm really grateful that you weren't malicious and harmful and intending to do damage to me, but what you didn't say, what you didn't do, was to try to take care of me. What you're saying is, I'm unimportant, I don't matter. (laughs) You're just collateral damage. We don't do collateral damage to image bearers. We do collateral damage to objects. This is an image bearer. Every person with whom you interact has been made in the image of God. We can't ignore them. We can't focus elsewhere and allow harm. We can't ignore their needs. John the Baptist in Luke 3 is talking about this particular issue. Beginning in verse 11... beginning in verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What's the wisdom out of the knowledge that you've just given us? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, are we And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content with your wages. In other words, live with integrity. Live recognizing the needs that you have the opportunity to satisfy. We are created as a community. We understand how the scripture talks about the body of Christ and how the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. We don't recognize that as the body of humanity, in the same way that in the body of Christ, your wounds weaken me, my wounds weaken you. We can't do things to damage the body of Christ simply because we want to. It's not merely our damage, it's the whole body. And when we allow damage to any part of the body, we damage the whole. So I can't ignore your needs. I can't ignore anyone's needs. I have to be redemptive in thinking about how I meet those needs, and sometimes the simple solution is the wrong solution. There's a really good book about diaconal ministry called When Helping Hurts. And I have to decide in my helping, am I trying to make myself feel better by doing something, or am I really caring for you as an image bearer? Another whole long topic. But we can't ignore needs. And we can't 
ignore sin. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. And I want you to hear how this is said. It's, it's incredible. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a trespass, caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore them, restore, bring healing, bring wholeness, in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. It is all about the value of the other. It is so incredibly easy to ignore sin. It's so incredibly easy, especially if that sinful character has a dominant personality and is going to make your life miserable when you raise the subject to simply walk beyond like the, tax, or like the Pharisee, I mean the, the priest and the Levite did with the Good Samaritan story. No, that's a can of worms. We don't want to open that. Okay, what you've just done is you've declared that that person should go away and die. I will not care for you. I will not address your brokenness in a spirit of gentleness. I will not look for your restoration. I'm just going to let you continue. Do you hear the selfishness in that? Do you hear the abandonment of an image bearer in that? You're not a person that needs to be made whole. You're simply a problem I'm going to avoid. Do you see Jesus do that? We also can't ignore our responsibilities to God and creation. God gives us a mandate. Fill the earth, subdue, have dominion for God's good, not to manipulate and gain our own selfish means and ends. It's a trust. It's another entire discussion. Lastly, for today, there's so much more, but I... I'm already fire-hosing you. We can't hate image bearers. We can't be bitter toward image bearers. We can't wish them harm. We can't judge them. Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. As I'm preparing this message, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, this is huge. This is overwhelming. This is impossible. How is it possible to learn who I am and to learn how to live as the image bearer I am in the midst of image bearers? Well, we're called to take the steps God calls us to take. We're not called to take steps to fix everything. It's not that any one of you is going to go out and fix the world. The world has a Savior. His name is Jesus. You don't, in your pride, have the opportunity to do that work. He's doing that work. But he calls you to be his hands and feet. He calls you to take part in his redemptive, restorative work. He calls you to live in the power of the Spirit with integrity and faithfulness. 
Lord, what do you want me to do? What am I ignoring that I can't? What am I not doing that I must? So number one, if you want to know what to do, sort of like John was telling everybody who came to him, number one, see the Savior for who he is and how powerful he is. And recognize that there is a Savior for this world, for this created order that God has established, and give thanks. But as you recognize how big he is, the first order of business is for you to see your sin. The first order of business is for you to recognize what you are doing you shouldn't and what you're not doing you should. You have a big Savior. You don't have to be afraid of what you're going to discover. You don't have to rule out sections of sin that you just don't want to deal with and you don't want to recognize and you feel like, oh my goodness, if I open this door, I'm going to be overwhelmed. No, you have a Savior who will make his work complete. He will redeem you. And he will call you to action. Secondly, grow in the knowledge and wisdom of truth. You have the truth. You have the spirit. You have Jesus. Thirdly, Repent of the sin that you see with a genuine repentance that actually says, okay, I've kind of avoided this for a long time. I've got to look at it. I've got to deal with it. I've got to understand it. Don't figure out what you've got to do with it yet. Just see what you need to repent of and repent. If you start with the steps to fix, you minimize what you're willing to see. See what's real and trust that the Savior is at work to accomplish in you what he intends. He's going to grow you in Christlikeness. And then lastly, work to reflect God to the world by living your identity as an image bearer amongst image bearers. It's about him. It's his world. It's his redemptive work. And because he is so wonderful and so amazing, we get to participate. Which can be both scary, but life-giving. Let me close. Father, it is incredibly difficult to keep in tension your transcendence and the fact that you are the amazing, unbelievable, unknowable, boundless God that you are and your imminence, that you're our daddy, that you love us and that you know us completely. Give us the ability to keep that balance. And as we do, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be eager to know your truth and to receive your wisdom and that you would be at work in us to bring about shalom. Please conform us to Christ and use us for good.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.